Hey there, it's Jude. Uh, this is not a new season of Storybound. As production on the show started, it became apparent that a new evolution had taken form. So the name of the show's changed. It's now called The Process. And The Process is where we get into, well, the process of something. That something could be writing a book, fixing a phone, building a video game from scratch. And it's not simply just the thing that you're doing, but it's about the process of going through it. It could take years. You know, this could be a career of doing action movie stunts or a career of documenting a war or becoming a city leader or building homes and feeding families in a third world country. These are processes that you will find anywhere from across the world to your own backyard. And it starts now. Waiting for a lift, so you better be quick. Okay, uh, my name is Jude. What's your name? Joan. Joan. Hi, Jude. Hi, thank you very much. So uh, tell me about a person you met and got along with without ever meeting in real life. Someone I got along with that I never met with in real life was my brother's host family in Germany when he studied abroad when he was younger in high school. Uh, maybe it happened when I was a teen. We had befriended them on the internet. It sounded kind of dangerous, but I remember that I connected with some kid who liked the same band that me. And it was in like the early mid 2010s or whatever. And we're like talking on MySpace and Facebook and stuff. And like, and I listened a lot to like metal and stuff like that. And nobody in my high school listened to that. My sister runs a book club online through Zoom. And I've met a ton of cool people through this like Zoom book club that they run. It's like a queer and like feminist book club called Rad Book Club, shout out. Books are my best friends because most of the people I meet are a little disappointing. Just got along with these people and would send little care packages to his siblings and stuff that were like my age but German and we never met but we just got along so well. Probably my best friend, a great writer from the Harlem Renaissance. I think of him every day. He was a great writer? Yeah. Do you know a lot of great writers? Oh yeah. They're my best friends. A majority of the people I've met over the last few years have been people I've never met in real life people who've made a lasting impact on how I see the world around me. It's the year 2023 after all, and we've experienced a major pandemic together, formed tighter virtual communities together, and even formed entirely new communities. But I'm gonna focus on one person today. His name is Andrew Lipstein. He's a writer. And Andrew and I met the way I meet a lot of people who don't live near me, will meet me, on a podcast. Right. Andrew, first question, hot topic, these protein bars. Mm -hmm. You have 13 of them right now in your backpack. 30, yeah. You have 30? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said 13. But no, but I, I literally came to Denmark with, I think, 75 of them. <laughs> okay. This is from 2022, where Andrew and I are getting greased up to chat about his first novel, Last Resort. At that time, he was just entering fatherhood. I, I certainly found that my worst writing comes from when I do know what's coming. And that's Andrew just a month ago. We were meeting one year later to chat about his second novel, The Vegan, which he had finished writing around 2020. Yeah, I, wrote, I started the book when my wife was pregnant with our first and basically set a deadline of when our son was born to finish it. This is the process that I like getting into with people. Their routine, how they stick to it, how they fall out of it, all the in-betweens. Yeah, I used to go to the gym like religiously up until the pandemic and then with kids. By the way, we're having twins. You're having twin boys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now he's soon to be a father of three. In this way, for Andrew, entering fatherhood is sort of like writing a book. Before you have a kid, I feel like you're sort of going up a roller coaster and you've never been on a roller coaster before and you just like, you feel that you're inching towards the top and you just don't know what to expect. 
And that's kind of like writing a book. I mean, I, I feel like you shouldn't know what's coming when you enter in a book. I'm Jude Brewer, and this is The Process. No, I did, re- I did research for this book. I interviewed a lot of like hedge fund guys, mm-hmm. and that was prep. But as far as like the plot of the book itself, I really, I never outlined. I, I certainly found that my worst writing comes from when I do know what's coming. The Vegan is a book full of many ideas, mostly due to being stuck in the narrator's head. And this narrator is someone who is fascinated with many things, language, history, fine art. But these are just his casual fascinations. Our narrator's named Herschel Kane, and Herschel likes to throw dinner parties with his wife and their A-list neighbors. But when he isn't trying to impress celebrities, he manages a hedge fund with his business partner, Milos. If you don't already know, a hedge fund is made up of private investors whose money is used to make high-risk investments for the hope of huge returns. Now, The Vegan is a work of fiction, but it has roots in Andrew's education. I feel much more like Herschel, and I think I projected a lot of my not insecurities, but you know, I majored in math in college and I definitely wasn't the top of my class. And and I sort of, you know, had to entertain like going into higher math, getting my, my grad degree or PhD. As upfront as Andrew is about his education, he's equally honest about his blind spots. I you know, I, I could never do the type of math that Milos does or somebody at a quant hedge fund does, I don't think. And and Herschel too has a background in math, but he's like always sort of not, he doesn't have an inferiority complex, but he understands he's not the one providing the value. Andrew's value of research for his novel is what got me thinking in the first place. Because to be perfectly honest, I don't think about the stock market very much at all. I don't participate in it. And while it's not the key idea of his book, The Vegan, that drew me in, I think it is important to break this down before we get into some of these other ideas first. First question, do you feel like you understand what the stock market is? Absolutely not. Yes. No, not really. No, because I feel like it's really complicated. I have like a, a small idea, but I mean, it's way more complex than my education. I have a good financial advisor. I'd probably turn to him. If you were to educate yourself enough, do you think you could make some money with stocks? Probably. Yes. Um, no. I've heard a lot of bad stories. I think that the the stock market is a place where people who have money get to go play and make more money without any real accountability. I mean, it's also, you have like the stockbrokers, like they run the game. People who have more access to more information about ways that money is going to be trading hands which I do not have access to. So being a little man, even if you know what you're doing, getting in there is kind of rough. Yeah, people go to school for that. Yeah. The Vegan opens with a scene full of characters who have all gone to school for this sort of thing. They not only understand what the stock market is, but they're directly involved with it. Herschel Cain's hedge fund is built upon the miracle of machine learning, specifically the invention of a black box. And this black box has the capability of predicting and influencing stock market trends. In an early conversation in the book, between Herschel and his co-worker Ian, Herschel explains how the black box is brilliant because they've taken intent out of the equation. The box can do what it wants, and they are not responsible for what happens. You know, economics is itself kind of a dog-eat-dog, zero-sum endeavor, and to win in it, you have to take from others. And so, as Herschel explains to Ian, 
they are conveniently sidestepping the moral quandary of taking away from others by claiming this machine learning miracle, this black box, absolves them of any harmful intentions. And what Ian says to him is that in itself is evil. And of course, Ian will not turn out to be the greatest barometer for morality, but he's really onto something where removing intent from our actions is itself an immoral act, even though oftentimes it feels like we are bypassing the question of morality altogether. This is the premise of a vegan. A hedge fund is on the cusp of manipulating the stock market in such a way that millions of unsuspecting people will lose money and the hedge fund will come out on top, raking in those dollars to an obscene degree. Which seems like a pretty timely premise. The way that you make money in the market is through having better access to information than other people. It's called arbitrage. And if you can arbitrage better than most, then you will make money in the stock market. If you invest in the S&P 500, you theoretically should make 7% a year. Tell me what you think about this premise for a book and if you think it's fiction or nonfiction. A hedge fund is on the cusp of being able to manipulate the stock market with an AI-driven algorithm, which will then allow this hedge fund to make a lot of money while millions of people will lose money. What's a hedge fund? Yeah, that sounds highly probable. Yeah, like, that seems yeah. probable, yeah. What makes you think it sounds probable today? I, I mean, I think that people who have money are investing their money in tech that's going to make them more money, and they don't care about fucking the rest of us. I think at some point in the future it may be plausible. I don't think it is at the moment with the way AI is. That just sounds, yeah, it sounds realistic to me. That sounds like something within our grasp of where we are in culture and society. Like, rich people are just trying to get more rich, and they, like, we don't exist. I mean, AI is, like, getting more and more prevalent, so I wouldn't be surprised. It has been, already been used to try to do stock picking and it, it's not successful. I think with future iterations of AI, it may be possible, but not presently. Oh, super nonfiction. I, have you read the book Dark Pools? I have not. Read Dark Pools. It's that without AI. I mean, the whole race, the whole race to trading like back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s was all about laying coax cable so that you could like literally send a, a money transfer faster than the rest, right? Versus having to call in your trades. So like algorithmic trading has been happening for a long time and AI is just the next step. If it can do it quicker than you can do it, it's gonna make more money more quickly than you can do it. If you haven't already seen the cover of Andrew's book, The Vegan, it depicts a wine glass with two green anoles, one having eaten the other. Now, an anole is essentially a, a, a reptile. It's a, it's a lizard type creature. I didn't actually know I had to look up what an anole is. Regardless, seeing you know one lizard eat the other lizard, it's a striking image. And if you're like me, who as a child, I used to scan record stores for album covers that appealed to me, where I would buy an album purely based off the album artwork alone. And then of course, I'd listen to the album and sit with it and wonder how the artwork played off of what I was hearing. You might look at the cover of The Vegan in the same way. What do these anoles mean? Why is one consuming the other? And what does this say about sidestepping the problem of taking away from others by removing intent from the equation? When I was a kid, I had two anoles and um, one didn't kill the other, but he stole the food from her mouth, causing her death. And I remember when my... <laughs> 
when Maya Knowles died, it really affected me when I was a kid. So much so that like, I think my mom used to take me to the grocery store so we could like make a cake for their funeral. But of course, maybe I didn't realize this as a kid, maybe I did, but the fact that that happened was my fault because I owned those two annuls, put them in a cage and in a very unnatural environment. And maybe it was the male annul that, you know, killed the female annul, but I was the one who caused that. So I had to write a freaking book, you know, 30 years later just to get rid of it. <laughs> okay. So as a child, Andrew experienced a profound sense of guilt for something that he didn't intend to happen. He felt indirectly responsible. In rereading it myself and editing it, and you know, I, not to get too woo-woo, but I'm always shocked by the subliminal connections. I mean, a book like this, like I am, I, I don't know what I'm doing while I'm doing it. And I often find connections like that and I, and I love it. Now the meaning of the two annuls on the book cover are about something else entirely different that does occur in his novel, The Vegan, which I would rather not get into here. But what I love about Andrew's childhood recollection here is that how a work of fiction contains these very real truths. And with all of the ideas presented in this novel, if the vegan absolutely had to be boiled down to a singular thing, it is a book about guilt. But guilt is not one thing. There is guilt that we should feel sorry for and do. There's guilt that we should feel sorry for and don't. And then there's guilt that we feel like isn't really ours to handle because maybe we were responsible, but we didn't have intent. And I think that is more or less the guilt of our time, which is that we are more and more communally responsible for harm against other people, but we're having less and less intent to that happening. Okay, wait a second. I, I have to hear that again. And I think that is more or less the guilt of our time, which is that we are more and more communally responsible for harm against other people. We're more and more communally responsible, but we're having less and less intent less and less intent for harm against other people. That's true. How so? How so? Wow, is this a tricky one? Look around. Evidence of it is everywhere. Everybody's closing their eyes because it's easier to not focus on the pain of others because there's a lot everywhere. I just feel like we're so focused on individualism in this time period. It's a very difficult question to answer it's way it, it deserves way more and we live now in a area where we are all kind of narcissistic so it's easier to close our eyes it's the most important question you could be asking for the time as andrew put it we are more and more communally responsible for harm against other people but we are having less and less intent to that happening the key word being intent. What does this mean in regards to Herschel Kane? Well, Herschel is already operating as though any harm caused by this black box is not harm that he feels directly responsible for. Stocks and trades and any manipulation of the market is all theoretical, it's all numbers to him, and suddenly, well, the story takes a turn. On the night of another one of Herschel's dinner parties, where him and his wife try and impress their neighbors, Herschel makes a choice. 
not a choice that has anything to do with algorithms or the market. Herschel hurts someone, one of his wife's friends named Bertie. He hurts her indirectly, but also directly. He hurts Bertie pretty bad, like in a completely life-changing way. And not life-changing for him, but for Bertie. And because I want to preserve the mystery of that experience for anyone who reads the book, I'm going to talk around the specifics of what Herschel does to Bertie. All that you need to know is that Herschel does feel guilt. And he stops himself from telling anyone what he's done, even his wife. Strange enough is how holding on to that guilt alone gradually changes him until he finds himself physically unable to eat meat. Everything about meat repulses him. So here, Herschel is dedicated himself to becoming a vegan, and he is watching his wife eat meat. They're sort of fighting about his veganism because she wants to know where it comes from, and he isn't ready to talk about it or doesn't exactly want to admit it to himself. I think we should reconsider whether we're ready, I said. For children, I mean. She made a quick, guttural noise. Her eyes blurred. She went elsewhere. She set her fork down, but held her knife. With her free hand, she picked up her plate, raising it slowly, and then slammed it down onto the table, the ceramic suddenly everywhere, in every corner of the room. The noise was surprisingly simple, a clean break not like the screeching of her chair, which rattled the glasses on the shelves as she backed away from the table. I listened to her climb the stairs, slam the bedroom door. I turned to the window, to the annuls. From where I sat, the tank appeared empty. I looked back at her chair, far from the table, and turned to the side. It struck me that in her absence, I did not love her more, as was usually the case after a fight. I had hate for her, yes, Hate was actually a good word. It served its purpose, not like love, which did too much. Without the word, I might not know the thing itself. I stood up, brought my dishes to the sink, and washed them. I went up to my office and signed into my computer. I wrote a brief email to Magda, thanking her for everything, and terminated our relationship. Philip had sent me a message, links to the videos that had turned him vegetarian. I clicked on one. I couldn't watch more than five seconds of it. I wondered what person could. To wash away those images, I selected one of the suggested videos on the sidebar. It featured two storks celebrating after laying an egg, performing a choreographed dance they must have practiced or witnessed before, or maybe it was always there, dormant inside them. I clicked on another suggested video. I watched rats laughing. And then I watched one of squirrels planting trees. I watched chimpanzees trading bananas and seahorses giving birth and snails sleeping for years at a time and elephants jumping, frogs vomiting, bats waking up, cows ruminating, prairie dogs kissing, pigs nursing, octopuses trying new food, dolphins speaking, sloths digesting, otters swimming, the facial expressions of horses, the loneliness of crocodiles. I watched two minutes of an interview with a writer named David Abram called Language and the Perception of Nature, and then I downloaded the audio version of his most popular book, The Spell of the Sensuous. 
I started listening to it and then clicked on the trailer for a movie called Gunda. I bought the movie, which was without a voiceover or any words at all, and so I was able to watch it while listening to the book. It was in black and white. Long scenes of a mother pig and her newborns, and a few other farm animals. We saw the piglets suckling, walking through nature, growing up. After about an hour, they were adolescents, and then they were loaded into a truck, and then we saw only the sow, bereft, searching, attempting to understand what could not be understood, that her children were gone and would never return, her utter now a heavy reminder of their absence, and all of the previous scenes depicting her indifference as they grabbed at her, fought over her nipples, were suddenly recast as memories of hers, memories that would fade, were already fading. When the credits came, I felt my chest expand and contract. I was close to hyperventilating. I wished I could cry and get it over with, but I knew I wouldn't. I switched to my noise-canceling headphones and went downstairs, through the now completely dark house, to the kitchen, where I laid out garbage bags and put in all the meat and fish, all the cheese and eggs and milk. I did the same with the pantry and then the backup freezer we kept in the basement. I took the bags outside, three in all, and stuffed them in the trash. It's interesting how he uh, manages to experience his emotions on a delay, everything that happened with his wife, and he, but he has to go through a whole other process to to connect to it. I I relate to that hugely. Yeah, always. The most impactful emotional experiences, like we said earlier, we see ourselves from the third person and we know how we should react, but it doesn't really, really truly affect us until later. Yeah, I can't, I, I have a problem where, and I experience this with my family, where my partner, she can cry and weep so openly and i i admire that about her mm -hmm. her daughter's same thing can just weep so openly and i mean they're you know <laughs> there's there's seven and eight so it makes sense but i myself really struggle and so if i manage to even have it get a tear out around other people it's a very strange sense of relief because i go oh thank god in this moment i can I, people actually know <laughs> know how i feel no i i know i know exactly what you mean <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. It's almost like redemptive. It feels true. It's not this, see, there's proof. Yeah. I have a heart. It's it's not that. It's actually just I'm able to express myself. Yeah. Yeah. I want my emotions to be seen too. I don't wanna I don't wanna yeah. feel them trapped and only ever experience them alone. Yeah, the only other option is just clenching your teeth all night and ending up with like jaw pain. <laughs> all right. We've come a long way from talking about the stock market. So how did we get here? Maybe it's the magic of the novel or it's more about what stuck with me. I mean, Andrew and I talked a lot about Animalia and this algorithm and what connective tissue there is between the two, but I don't know if there must be a clear connection or not. And if there is, it really comes down to the guilt. The guilt of our time, as Andrew put it. And for as much as we're entrenched in Herschel's mind for the entirety of the novel, I couldn't help but want to hear what his wife Franny was thinking. Everything she was doing to cope with the tragedy of what had happened, either indirectly or directly because of her husband. You know, we're so involved with Herschel that we don't really get to feel how she's feeling. Herschel seems almost incapable of that because he's so engrossed by his guilt. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're both on these journeys. She's mourning for something that she thinks is a freak accident. She is 
lamenting, she's sad, she turns her wanting things to have been different. Basically, she's like pouring herself into Bertie's medical case and like questioning what the doctors are doing, which is which is very how I me and my family have responded to tragedy in our own lives. I often think of like, if I was somebody else looking at Andrew, was what I did right if I wasn't me, if I didn't have all that baggage of being in my body for 35 years? Was what I did right if I wasn't me? So something I wanted people to do when I talk with them is in between our conversations, hoping that they could record little moments of their lives, whether they're out with a friend or it's a bird by the window or something, something that tells you a story of their life through the sounds that they hear on a day-to-day basis. You might call them life samples. Just those moments that would have otherwise passed me by. Yeah, is she speaking in Danish? Yeah, that's my wife. That's the only scared. There's a friend I haven't seen in a while, and we went down to the shore with a few families, and I was walking with him on the beach, and just and we were just talking about life and catching up, and I just started recording, and he says something like, "Well, man, I'm glad I'm glad to hear you're still throwing parties or something like that." <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're still throwing parties. Just those moments that would have otherwise passed me by. I deploy white noise frequently to get sleep and achieve peace of mind. Well, then the last thing I have to uh, have you do is I'm going to have you read a prompt. I'll just put it in a little chat. It's a sentence, and uh, you're, you don't have to have a comment to it if you don't like, but if it makes you think of something, you're uh, free to comment or ask questions about it, or, um, but I'm going to sample it, so I'm putting it in the chat right now. Great. I'm glad it doesn't say, like, uh, I killed Samantha, <laughs> Samantha Johnson on April 11th. <laughs> I'm like, this whole new podcast is a ruse for Jude to make me go to jail for his crime. Look, we've been recording for close to an hour, so there's, yeah. more, than, there's more than enough here that I can stitch something together. Yeah, at this yeah. Point. All right, kill Samantha. <laughs> the quote that you're going to hear Andrew read and then respond to is a quote from Leonard Cohen during a New Yorker Radio Hour interview in 2017. You're dying, but you don't have to cooperate so enthusiastically with the process. You're dying, but you don't have to cooperate so enthusiastically with the process. It seems like something a, uh, like, not a therapist would say, but like a therapist uh, on a TV show would say. It feels like there feels like there's like layers of of sarcasm here, but you know, actually rereading it, I imagine someone who's actually dying, and the levity that is often necessary, especially between family members and uh, 
people who are close around those moments that that are you know even to call them tragic would be to diminish them um which i think is tragic in itself that we often have to have to do that um and like to lift each other up but yeah that's what it makes me think of Hmm. it's something leonard cohen said in one of his final interviews really the new yorker radio hour yeah and it stuck with me for just the past several years um and just keeps coming up in my mind for a variety of reasons but it's what led to why i'm why the name the process has just kind of now fixated itself in my head it's funny because i'm actually getting goosebumps because leonard cohen is so i i think i've told you maybe off off air but my dad had a very tragic injury and when he was in the hospital him and i listened to hallelujah by leonard cohen um a lot and when he was out of the hospital, we would listen to it together and it would just occasionally bring us both to tears. And then uh, shortly after his injury, my wife and I went to Montreal and we went to, uh, I forget what museum it was, but they just had a Leonard Cohen exhibit and we got him a uh, a big yellow poster, which is nice because he's, he's basically blind, but he can sometimes see very bright colors. So it's hanging in his uh, bedroom. Yeah, well, uh, I'm happy. I'm happy to give you some goosebumps. Um, well, I love getting goosebumps. It's kind of like uh, you're crying. It's like <laughs> you, you're like what I'm feeling is very real right now because you can't will goosebumps, you know. No, you can't. I had a moment the other day uh, where I was sitting and writing, and I was the word coyote came into my head, but only because I'd been on a run the previous day and saw a coyote on my run. So I'm sitting outside about like seven in the morning. And as I'm writing the word coyote, I, and I'm working on this one part in my story, I look up and I get this weird feeling to look behind me. And there's that same coyote standing behind me. Damn. And it's not at all in the same place of where I was running. This was at least maybe eight blocks away or something. Damn, something is, something is hunting you. Maybe it's that uh, Samantha Johnson woman you murdered. <laughs> All right, I've, we're we're gonna have to stop the recording at this point because anything else at this point is gonna be incriminating. So, <laughs> well, I'm still recording, bud. So watch it. <laughs> My conversation with Andrew was a long one. We covered a lot of ground, got into all sorts of spoiler territory with the book. So, if you've read the book and you want to hear a more in-depth discussion, just raw book talk, head over to cooperatewiththeprocess.com or just check the link in the show notes. You also heard a bunch of voices on the show, people on the street chatting. If you want to be one of those voices, or if you have an idea for the process, again, check the show notes or head over to cooperatewiththeprocess.com.